Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one, verses six through 12 will be our base text for today. Uh, As I mentioned at the call of worship, we're taking just a brief break from our exposition of 1 Thessalonians. And today is a uh, topical sermon on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're gonna be focusing on today. We're gonna be... um, referencing, I think, over 50 different texts, but don't worry, they're going to be on the board for you. We'll only turn to maybe five, but I'm going to have to talk fast to get through this, and um, I pray that at the end of this, you'll know what the gospel is not, and you will know what the gospel is, and uh, I pray that the Spirit of God would use it in your heart. So Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I will say it again. If any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. These are strong and serious words from the Apostle Paul that really cut to the heart of our culture. In a postmodern, post-Christian era where pluralism, relativism, and pragmatism run rampant, the absolute truth of the Bible seems particularly arrogant and intolerant. Absolute truth, as is stated by the Apostle here, is antithetical to our postmodern culture that believes that ultimate truth, if there even is such a thing, cannot be known and cannot be accurately described by one system of belief. Now, this this claim of the postmodern culture seems to me to have an embedded contradiction in it since how can you make the absolute claim that there is no such thing as absolute truth? How do you know that? But even if it were true, then one can easily see why our culture enforces the religion of secular humanism, where the doctrine of tolerance is seen as the supreme teaching and the maximum expression of love, where self-fulfillment and pleasure are the highest ends achievable, where pluralism, relativism, and pragmatism are the theological systems that allow everyone to do what is right in their own eyes, and where subjective feelings are the ultimate authority that can be appealed to so that everyone can pursue what he ultimately desires. Now, when a disciple of secular humanism listens to a preacher stand up and declare that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him, they'll say under their breath, how unloving, how arrogant. Or if they're really a mature disciple of secular humanism, they might say, well, I'm glad that works for him. They respond this way because of those prevailing theological systems. The pluralist says, that there may be one ultimate truth, but we certainly cannot explain it in absolutist terms. So the Muslim, the Hindu, the Christian, the Buddhist are really all just explaining the same higher power. There's just different paths to the top of that mountain, so to speak, where the relativist says that truth really is a cultural construct and that everyone's bubble of truth is equally valid. And you can just sort of hop to every bubble that you feel like hopping to as long as it serves you best. The Christian then is seen as arrogant because he's denying the validity of Allah. The Christian is seen as arrogant because he is not affirming the Hindu belief that there are 300 million plus gods. But the Christian says that Jesus is the only true God and for this he is condemned. The pragmatist says that truth is essentially whatever works. As long as it helps you in your life and produces the best possible outcome for society, that is truth. This is just a tiny sample of the culture's typical response to a declaration of exclusive absolutist truth that we hear the Apostle Paul saying. And as we're going to see today, what's alarming about this 
is that this postmodern worldview has crept its way into the church. Massive sections of so-called Christianity are nearly indistinguishable from the world today. And the research on this is absolutely undeniable. According to researcher George Barna, for example, 85% of born-again teenagers do not believe in the existence of absolute truth. In one research survey he conducted, over 60% of that same population agreed with this statement, quote, nothing can be known for sure except the things you experience in your own life, end quote. Christian Smith, who's a well-known researcher at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, conducted the largest study of teen religion to date. Here's a quote from his conclusions. Quote, the majority of American teenagers appear to espouse rather inclusive, pluralistic, and individualistic views about religious truth, identity boundaries, and the need for religious congregation, end quote. How did this happen? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, it says in Hosea. I'll tell you how it happened. Preachers stopped preaching and stopped teaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened because church leadership teams wanted to impress the world by proving how relevant and relatable their church is in hopes to win more of them. It happened because we stopped reading our Bibles and stopped applying its teaching to our lives. It happened because the false gospel became normal. I've titled today's sermon, What is the True Gospel? And in it, we're gonna get a clear view of the spectrum of what the false gospel is and what's available to the culture today. And then we'll get a thorough understanding of the glorious reality of the true gospel, which is Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-led, and God-honoring. I've provided a very simple outline for today. It's three points with many subheadings, which we'll see later. The false gospel, the true gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel call to repentance and faith. Let's start with the false gospel of legalism. The false gospel of legalism. Look at Galatians chapter one, verses six through seven. I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The false gospel of legalism essentially is the belief that we in and of ourselves can somehow attain the righteous requirement of God without solely relying on the merit of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Galatian, we have one of the many forms of this false gospel of legalism. Theologians refer to it as Galatianism. Essentially, it says this, that salvation is started through faith, but it is then completed through my effort. The issue in the Galatian church is stated for us in Galatians chapter three, verses two through three. Why, why don't you turn there? <clears throat> the apostle Paul says, this is the one thing I wanna learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? There's Galatianism. Faith begins salvation. The flesh perfects salvation. But the problem with that is it doesn't, it doesn't stand up underneath the weight of scripture. John chapter three, verses five through seven, Jesus himself says to Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Flesh produces more flesh. Therefore, Galatianism cannot work. The next variation of the false gospel of legalism is what we'll refer to as pure legalism or works-based righteousness. And it basically says that I merit the righteousness of Christ. There's many flavors of it. Number one, it says I fulfill God's law by myself. That's the first flavor of it. This is what we call Phariseeism, right? Many of you guys use that term. Yo, what a Pharisee, right? What a hypocrite. Acts 15.1 says this, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The false gospel of pure legalism says you must be circumcised. You must go do this. Today, it would be like this. You must go get baptized in order to be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that baptism itself does not save, but it is an outward reflection of the inward 
transformation that has already occurred. The next flavor of the false gospel of legalism says, I will fulfill God's law with the help of the Holy Spirit. The Roman Catholic doctrine refers to this help as a quote unquote infusion of grace. Council of Trent, Canon 9, quote, if anyone saith that by faith alone, the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification and that in it, it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be accursed. In other words, what this is saying is the person's ability to choose Christ just needs a little bit of help. But Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. How does a dead person do anything? It doesn't, under, it doesn't stand up underneath the weight of scripture. To continue in the Council of Trent, Canon 11, quote, if anyone says that men are justified either through the imputation of Christ's justice alone or through the remission of sins alone, excluding grace and charity, which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and inheres in them, or also that the grace which justifies us is only the goodwill of God, let that man be anathema, end quote. In other words, if you believe that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, the Roman Catholic Church says you should be accursed. By the way, for those of you who have come from that, you will know this. And those of you who don't know this, the Council of Trent is still what the Roman Catholic Church holds as its primary body of doctrine. But the entire Bible speaks against this notion that all we need is a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three, we get a succinct definition of the human heart. Unequivocal, unambiguous, clearly stated. The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 10 through 18, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. I don't need a little bit of help. No, thank you. I don't care for God. I don't want him. That's the human heart. Continuing on, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Doesn't matter if it's the Pope, it's the priest, it's the prophet, it's the pastor. There is not one who does good is what the Bible proclaims is truth. All have turned aside. With their throat, their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they keep, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This notion that I need a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit does not stand under the weight of scripture. The next flavor of the false gospel of legalism that says I just need a little bit of help manifests itself in the charismatic Pentecostal movement where speaking in tongues is a prerequisite or is a requisite rather for salvation. It is the evidence that one is saved according to their doctrine. You know, I, I uh, grew up in that movement. I used to speak in tongues and I was taught how to do that. You know, we'd have the, the sermons every night. At the end, we'd have the altar call and and all the pastors would disseminate through the children. And they begin to teach us how to do this. It's a bubbling up. It's a bubbling up. Just keep, just keep talking. Just, it'll flow. It'll flow. And I was very confused, I have to admit, for the first couple of nights. And I felt really guilty that I couldn't do it. I started to question, well, does God love me? Am I not saved? Because I can't do this one thing? And finally, I faked it. And finally, I just faked it to be accepted. The question that we have to ask ourselves is that biblical? First Corinthians, go to, go to First Corinthians chapter twelve. Chapter twelve, verse eleven teaches us that the Holy Spirit apportions all of the spiritual gifts to each one individually, just as He wills. It is the Holy Spirit's prerogative; it is His to give. Going to verse twenty-seven and following in the same chapter. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. 
Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. You can't learn how to speak in tongues. The Apostle Paul explicitly states that. So the conclusion then with the false gospel of legalism should lead you to believe since none of that stands up underneath the weight of scripture that we can do nothing to save ourselves. It is wholly and entirely an act of God. He's the one who sovereignly calls. He's the one who sovereignly saves and he's the one who sovereignly sanctifies the believer. Now this reality has led some to throw off all restraint and responsibility in their life, which leads me to the other end of the spectrum of this false gospel. You have the false gospel of legalism, and now you have the false gospel of what's referred to as antinomianism, anti against nomos law. This is the false gospel that is anti the law of God. Jude 4, it's on the screen for you. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, here it is, who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This false gospel denies the lordship of Jesus Christ. It creates a false dichotomy in his person. It divides him up as savior on the one hand and as Lord on the other hand. It says that Jesus can be your savior, but not your Lord. This, uh, this claim conveniently skips Luke chapter two, verse 11. Quote, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. It is not a false dichotomy. It is one. He is the savior, the Lord. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, he's your Lord. Now, what Jude is referring to is the uh, Gnostic influence that was already infiltrating the early church. This was influenced by Greek philosophical thought. They divided matter, uh, reality rather, up into two categories. All physical matter was inherently corrupt, sinful, and wicked. All spiritual matter was inherently pure, not corrupt, and good. Now, why does this matter? Because if that's the case, then what I do in this body doesn't ultimately have any bearing on my soul, which is pure and good. You guys ever heard this phrase? I'm, they're basically a good person, right? That's a Gnostic idea. That is not a biblical idea. There is no one good, is what Paul said. Not even one. And those weren't his own opinions. He's quoting scripture. So, if you believe that people are just inherently good or there's a spark of the divine, which is what the new age says, well, then this makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, he's, he's the savior. He didn't really, it's not my Lord. It's not gonna hold me accountable for what I do in this body that's already evil and corrupt. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that sin comes from that spirit, that soul. Mark 7, verses 21 through 23 for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things, all of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So that's Jude's context. Today, the false gospel of antinomianism is manifested in what we refer to as the hyper grace or non-lordship movement. This movement completely downplays the role of God's holy law or the lordship of Christ in and over the life of the believer. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Let's see how Jesus speaks of the law of God. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, that refers to the law, which he just said in the previous sentence, and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus had a high view of the law of God. He came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. He came to provide that righteousness that he just referred to that is necessary if you're going to come into the kingdom. He provides the righteousness while not abolishing the law. It's reality or it's bearing on and in your life. So what is the relationship then between the believer and God's law? Am I saying you have to keep the law to be saved? No, it's very simple. Christ, God's righteousness is deposited in you by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God's righteousness dwelling within you manifestly changes the way you think, speak, and act. And God's law becomes the standard by which you not only desire to live by, but which you actually begin to live by. This is not so you can become righteous in God's sight. That's not what I'm saying. It is Christ's righteousness alone, but it is that righteousness which is indwelling you now. And so salvation by grace through faith does not abolish the significance of God's law in the believer's life. Look at Romans chapter three, verse 31, which the apostle Paul says directly after he introduces justification by faith. He says, do we then abolish the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. This is the new covenant promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Here's the law of God summed up in two sentences. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that without the Holy Spirit. So, conclusion. The false gospel of antinomianism is wrong because it violates the clear teachings of Scripture that teach on the significance of God's law in the life of the believer. Christ is our righteousness. By grace, through faith, that righteousness is deposited into the believer as a free gift by God in the form of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That righteousness then transforms the heart of the believer and is made manifest in the thoughts, speech, speech and action of the believer that just so happened to be in accordance with God's holy law. Like my brother Chad always says, it's a worship issue. It's always a worship issue. If we don't worship God, we won't act like God. If we do worship God, we'll slowly begin to act more and more like him. So there's the two ends of the spectrum. Now you have the center, which is the false gospel of self-fulfillment. This is the man-centered gospel. This is the gospel that is the most prevalent today. Galatians 5.13, for you were called the freedom brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love, serve one another. The man-centered self-fulfillment gospel, like I said, is the most prevalent false gospel today. This is what you will see on Instagram. This is what you will see on Facebook. This is what you will see being peddled to you, peddled to you. This is what you will see in the majority of the churches today. This is what you will hear from the majority of the pulpits today. It is the most insidious And it is incredibly enticing to the flesh. And it is idolatry of the grossest sort. This false gospel of self-fulfillment promises the blessings of Jesus Christ rather than Christ himself. And it elevates these blessings to a position higher than him. It might sound like this. Hey, are you looking for a little fulfillment in your life? Hey, do you just need purpose? Hey, are you looking for love? Do you want a wife? How about children? Do you want an extremely large bank account? You know, God will bless your business if you give 10%. You ever heard those sorts of things? They are selling you the blessings of God instead of God himself. And if you come in wanting the blessings, you won't want Christ when your business doesn't do well, when your health does fail, when you don't get those children, when you fill in the blank. If you don't want Jesus Christ, When things get hard, you will walk away from the faith that you thought you had. 
While these blessings are not sinful in and of themselves, they become sin to you when they become the goal of your life instead of knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14 to see what our Lord has to say about this. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Talking about the false gospel, the man-centered gospel, the gospel of possessions, the gospel of self-fulfillment. Chapter 14 of Luke, starting at verse 25. Now many crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him or with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. Jesus is essentially saying that in order to be his disciple, you must give him all of your allegiance. He requires your entire person. He has not come simply to make your life successful and to fulfill your fleshly desires. He has come to fulfill the will of the Father, to provide what is necessary for the forgiveness of sins so that he may take for himself a people zealous for good works. He's come to restore his creation to its originally intended purpose, which is to be filled with the glory of God as God is in relationship with mankind. This is why he came, not just to give you simply what your flesh desires. The false gospel of self-fulfillment is the gospel of the Antichrist. This is the gospel of the Antichrist. It is idolatry of the grossest sort. Who doesn't want fulfillment? Who doesn't want pleasure? Who doesn't want business success? Who doesn't want more money? But if you want those things more than Jesus Christ, you're gonna get God when the, when the Antichrist shows up. I have to warn you, this is idolatry of the grossest sort. Luke chapter nine, verse 23, he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and fulfill and follow me. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen. Do you want the blessings of Christ more than Christ himself? If so, here's what the Lord would say to you. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So there's the spectrum of what's available to you in our postmodern culture. If you want it, it's everywhere. And I pray you don't want it because it'll lead you straight to hell. And if you've been believing that, please pay attention to the rest of today's sermon. Let me tell you about the true gospel of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you about the first essential element of the gospel, which is and always must be the character of God himself. God is the self-existent, holy, and righteous creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Exodus 3.14, the Lord gives his name to Moses when Moses asks, and he says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. This is the word translated Yahweh that you hear us reading here. That refers to the I am. This name in particular is the covenant name that he gave to the people of Israel, but it refers to his self-existence. He always was, always will be. He exists outside of creation. He is the only uncreated one. 
First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Holy, righteous, undefiled, separate from sinners, pure light. Psalm eleven seven. for Yahweh, the I am, is righteous and he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you amongst the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? God is holy, righteous, and good. He is self-existent, and he is also love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And he demonstrates this love. You know how? by sending his son to die on a cross in the place of sinners who do not deserve it. Thus showing us that what real love is, is not self-gratification, but self-sacrifice. Exodus 34 verses six through seven tell us that he is also a gracious, merciful, patient, and long-suffering God. It says this, then Yahweh passed in front of Moses and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation which is to say he will let sin continue on throughout the generations. The Lord is holy. The Lord is righteous. He himself is the uncreated creator. And he's also love. He is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, patient, slow to anger, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But as we're gonna find out, there's one way to be forgiven. The Lord is also a great king. Psalm 24, verse 10, who is he? This king of glory, Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. And as king, God is also the lawgiver. Exodus 19, four through six, he says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Then God proceeded to come down in fire on the Mount Sinai and give to Moses the law, the 10 commandments. So he is the king. He is also the lawgiver, And he is also the judge of his own law. Psalm 50 verse six says, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. As king, as lawgiver, as judge, he reserves the right to extend that mercy and that grace that we referred to just a moment ago to anyone whom he desires to extend it to. Exodus 33, verse 19b, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Beloved, the true gospel must always begin not with man's sin or with man in general, but first and foremost, it must begin with who God is. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is significant because without this understanding of the true God, we are utterly and completely lost. Acts 17, 28, basically say that all reality exists within God. Quote, for in him, God, we live and move and have our being. Without the true knowledge of God, we simply cannot understand reality. Ever wondered why things are going so haywire? Where's God in the public square? Truth is non-existent. It's redefined. Why do you think chaos is everywhere? Here's the main point. The eternal God's self-existence and nature are what reality corresponds to. Without this knowledge, mankind is lost. 
swimming in a sea of chaos and confusion, self-afflicted with fatal wounds, ultimately separated from his creator due to his own sin. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, which leads us then to the second essential component of the gospel, which is the depravity of man. Turn to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, I'll ask you to turn there and we'll look at verses seven, sorry, verses four through seven. In Genesis chapter three, we see where sin entered into the heart of mankind when Adam and Eve voluntarily decided according to their own freedom of choice to cast off the instruction of the Lord and begin to listen to another counselor, namely the satanically possessed serpent. And in verse four, the serpent flatly denies the word of God. He says to the women, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. And here it is. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she leaned on her own understanding. I added that. And she took from it its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This desire to be like God is the root of all sin. This desire to be the determiner of what is right and wrong. This desire to be pridefully independent of any authority. This desire for autonomy to live however one wants, this is the root of sin. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Turn to Genesis 6. It doesn't take very long for sin to spread throughout God's creation. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is an absolutely unambiguous, unequivocal statement. Every intent, only evil continually. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Notice how mankind is designated as quote flesh. And flesh has every intention of their heart and every thought be only evil continually. And this has not changed because this is actually true now. This means something very bad for mankind in light of the character of God. This is the bad news of the gospel. Ezekiel 18, not 18, four. Behold, all souls are mine the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine and the soul whose sins will die. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The sin is what characterizes all flesh. Ecclesiastes seven twenty: there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And you might say, well, I mean, God will surely respect my best efforts, won't he? No, he won't. Isaiah 64, 4 tells us that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. Matthew 5, 20 says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, this is the bad news of the gospel that so many churches have removed from the pulpit. This is why the world is the way that it is, because we have forgotten who God is. Every soul that sins must die. Why? Because God is righteous. What can be done, you may ask? That's a good question. Let me tell you, there is good news. There is good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the most vital need of mankind. And he has done what no mere man can do. 
Let me tell you about this person, Jesus Christ. Let me speak about his person and his pre-incarnate glory, which is the third essential element of the gospel. As I said, Jesus Christ is no mere man, nor is he a demigod or an archangel or any other created being. No, he himself is the second person of the uncreated Trinity. He is this God that I have been describing to you this entire time. He himself is the holy, righteous, graceful, merciful king who is himself the lawgiver, the judge who shows no partiality. He has existed before the creation of the world because he himself is the creator. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He himself says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Christ is the second person of the Trinity who existed from before the foundation of the world. And this leads us to the fourth essential element of the gospel, which is Christ's incarnation. And the reason why mentioning his pre-incarnate glory is so critical because when you understand that, the incarnation becomes dumbfounding. That the king of glory would voluntarily leave his throne and come down in the form of a helpless babe. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. They describe to us from Luke's account, this glorious reality. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you, overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child will be called the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to you, may it be done to me rather, according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the king of glory comes and is born as a helpless babe. Therefore, he is both fully God and fully man. And eventually this young boy grew up and he was quite impressive. Go to Luke chapter two. Turn to Luke chapter two, verses 46 through 52. Mary and Joseph had attended a festival in Jerusalem, the feast of the Passover. They usually traveled in caravans to and from. So when they left the festival, they just assumed Jesus was with the caravan. And it turns out he wasn't. Verse 46, and it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, seeking in the, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, where have you, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus said to them, why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
Notice that Jesus, as a young boy, was aware of who his heavenly father was. He was also full of wisdom and yet somehow still growing in wisdom. And what is most pertinent to what we're talking about, perhaps, is that he was perfectly obedient. As we see himself in verse 51, staying in continued subjection to Mary and Joseph, which leads to the fifth essential element of the gospel, Christ's perfect obedience. Christ's perfect obedience is necessary, not only so that he might die for the sins of the unrighteous, but also that his perfect life might be imputed to the sinner. Without this imputation of Christ's righteousness, we do not have the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. Without Christ's righteousness given to us, we have no hope. Isaiah 64, 6, again, all our deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, says this, Who may ascend into the holy mountain of Yahweh? And who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully. You see, when we read this, we generally go, oh yeah, that's me. No, it's not. That's the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have a pure heart. You don't have a pure heart. There's only one who has that. It is Christ's perfect obedience that is required to stand in the king, king's presence. We have to have his righteousness. We, we have to have more than just the mere forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament sacrifices provided a temporary forgiveness of sins. But the Old Testament system of sacrifices lacked the ability to completely remove sins from the record of debt that stands against sinners. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Psalm 24 then explains to us that in order to be made right with the king of glory, we must possess a righteousness that is like the king's righteousness. This is available to the sinner because of Christ's perfect obedience, which is imputed to your account before the judge by grace through faith alone. He lived a perfectly obedient human life and he died a death that has eternal value because of the fact that he is fully God, which leads us to the sixth essential element of the gospel, Christ's death. It is an undeniable historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died by way of crucifixion under Pontius Pilate outside the city of Jerusalem. However, simple adherence to this fact or acknowledgement of this historical fact is not faith. Biblical faith is not a simple acknowledgement of history. Biblical faith is evidenced when a sinner believes that Christ died in their place, that Christ's death becomes the sinner's death and that this death has accomplished the sinner's redemption. This is referred to as vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement. Vicarious, in the place of, penal, paid my penalty, substitute, in the place of. His perfect obedience being substituted to my account. And he has made us at one with God. Turn to Romans chapter six to see this. Turn to Romans chapter six verses three through 11. Romans chapter six, verses three through 11, the apostle Paul writes, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, that's a synonym for baptism in this context. In the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would not be long, no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, 
he lives to God. And here's the critical point for you. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been baptized. We've been united with Christ by faith. His death becomes our death. This means that we are dead to sin for the wages of sin is death. If we are truly dead to sin, then we are necessarily alive to God, which points us to the great miracle of Christ's resurrection, which is the seventh essential element of the gospel. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 17 through 19. The importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. Without this, we don't have anything. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, then simply there is no such thing as salvation. Now, a skeptic might say this. Well, you only believe that because you want to. To which the Christian should always reply, how do you know that Christ has not been raised from the dead? And he might say, well, because nobody can be resurrected three days after they've died. That's preposterous. To which you should say, I don't know if you've seen uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through nine, but that says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which in this context refers to the Old Testament, which was written hundreds and thousands of years prior to Christ, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to those same scriptures, And then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, which is to say some have died. And after that, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Seems to me that over 500 people Witness the resurrected Christ. And when Paul was saying that, you could fact check him on it. He said, most of these brothers are still alive. Go ask them. Or you might say, sir, I don't know if you've read uh, Luke chapter one, verses one through four, which says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, notice it's past tense, just as those from who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and servants of the word handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well then, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty about the things which you have been taught. It seems to me that Luke, the beloved physician, was just simply recording eyewitness statements about Jesus Christ. Or maybe he hasn't read 1 John 1, 3, which says, what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Sir, have you read any of these things? To which he would say, well, I mean, of course those guys say that, right? I mean, they have a vested interest in propagating this lie. To which the Christian might want to suggest that the man then read Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus Christ ever was born. Or he could go to Psalm 22, which David wrote roughly 1,000 years before Jesus was born, both of which detail with precision the essential elements of the gospel, including the resurrection of the Messiah. This doctrine is airtight. It's bulletproof both historically and theologically, the burden to prove otherwise rests squarely on the skeptic's shoulders, not on yours. This should bring you an incredible amount of joy, by the way. (laughs) You should be confident in the Lord. That's why the gospel has to start with him. The argument is not between people. The argument is between people and God. Don't start with man. They're gonna fight with you and they might win. 
They're not gonna win with him. According to the scriptures, Christ's resurrection is a public declaration of Jesus being God's son. It is the confirmation of our legal declaration of innocence before God the judge. It is the validation of your faith being placed in the right and true God, the pledge of our future resurrection from the dead, and it is also the proof that God will bring all men, believers and non-believers, into judgment to evaluate their lives. And he will bless the believers with eternal life and non-believers with eternal damnation. You and I, if you are in Christ, have no reason to fear death. Who else can claim that in truth? They can only claim it in arrogance. And don't let their arrogance fool you. They are scared stiff. Death for us simply becomes the doorway to an eternal existence with the lover of our soul. That's good news. We, we will be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the exalted King. But the gospel does not stop there. It goes to the eighth essential element, which is Christ's ascension and exaltation. The scriptures not only teach that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, but also teaches that 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, his Father. Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, thus signifying the work is finished. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to, the, to come. The government, spiritual forces, nobody has authority over Jesus Christ. He is the risen king. The resurrection is the public proclamation of the creator God's risen Christ King. And his exaltation is the demonstration that that sacrifice was accepted in God's sight and that the person who sacrificed himself is the regal King. However, the gospel does not end here. It does not end with the great promise of salvation for sinners and a King who rides off into victory after fulfilling this promise. It ends with a final judgment against all sin by the, by the reigning Christ who is the risen Lord. It ends with the return of the king to take dominion over his earthly throne. This is the ninth essential element of the gospel, Christ's return. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 prophesies this glorious day for, it, for us. Psalm 2 Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens just laughs. The Lord mocks them. And then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Oh, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 prophesies this event for us. Turn to Revelation 19 to see it in vivid detail. Revelation 19 starting at verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and he who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. 
having a name written on it, which no one knows except himself and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress, the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of strong men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. And the beast was seized and with him, the false prophet who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Those, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were finished." Christ will come again to earth. He will establish his reign on the earth and rule it. He will defeat sin, defeat Satan, and destroy death finally. And then he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. Turn to Revelation 22, verses one through seven. This is the true gospel, that evil will be destroyed. This is how the story ends. And in chapter 22 of Revelation, Verses one through seven, this is how it ends for us, the church. Then he showed me a river, a river of the water of life, bright as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, there was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his slaves will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and they will no longer, there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his slaves the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the true gospel. This leads us to the third point of today's sermon and the final, the gospel call to repentance and faith. Because verse seven says, blessed are they who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. How do we do that? Well, it starts with repentance. Matthew four, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do I repent? Let's turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart that is manifestly obvious because it changes actions, behaviors, and desires. You leave the love of sin and you turn to Christ. How do you do this? Luke 18, verses nine through 14. And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector 
standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Salvation is the sovereign act of God by which he gives you a new heart. And that new heart is evidenced clearly here in the tax collector. Humility, confession of sin, pleading for God for his mercy. And God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you are saved, the gospel doesn't end there. Sanctification is then how the truth of this gospel is carried out in the life of the believer as we behold the revelation of Jesus Christ, just like Paul said in Galatians 1.12. If you've never repented truly, I call you to repentance today if you have not believed the true gospel. And I must warn you against rejecting this. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll end with this. Starting at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. There's a coming day of judgment I call you all today, if you have not believed the true gospel, but have fallen to the deceit of the false gospel, confess, repent today and be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. No longer running out of fear of your nakedness before God. Be clothed with the righteousness of Christ today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel We thank you for the risen, exalted Christ, the Lamb of God who shed his own blood for sinners. Oh, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead many in this room today to salvation, that you would sanctify the saints as they continually behold the glory of Christ and grow in the knowledge of who he is. This is maturity not doing more things, but knowing God through Christ more. Help us to grow, Lord. Please forgive us of our prayerlessness. Please please forgive us of our waywardness. Please forgive us of our lukewarmness. God, let the warning sit on our hearts today. Spirit of God, convict us of sin if need be and open our eyes to Christ as we celebrate the Lord's table today. In Jesus' name, amen.